Assalamu alaikum everyone. I'm Grace, but I've grown a beard this week. No, Grace is not here. She's uh, out of town. And uh, a lot of people are away. Who, there's, a, there's a guy that used to sit right here. His name was Jim, John, was it? Joe. Oh, jo yeah, Joe, the guy who uh, edited the Prophet's Pulpit, yeah. Um, I'm not going to do the usual intro, just uh, I'm officiating, so there's not much to say other than, you know, attention does need to be brought to yesterday's khutbah, which was um, about how having a relationship with Allah requires serving others, and it's about... Um, extending basically your efforts not just in individual acts of worship and ritual but in uh, helping enrich other people's lives aiding the needy etc there was one thing that stood out about the khutbah was that the youtube comments were blowing up because uh, they were wondering who who gave the adhan um and it was really uh it was me. Um, so uh, people are asking about this. Um, Witsky, I don't think I'm going to be able to be your manager anymore. I'm going to need my own. Uh, she just dropped off, so we're going to have to. Can, can we repeat that joke when she logs back on? Where's Witsky? She, she was just there. She just missed it. That was just for her. So yeah, Sharif, please uh, listen to the khutbah. Uh, you, it's you, it's for your your type of personality. <laughs> okay, so uh, without further ado, uh, week two of Surat Al-Maida, um, and that's that's the conclusion of the introduction. Right? Yeah. When she logs back on, I'll come back and we can repeat the joke. Maybe. Well, is Grace saying something? We can't hear. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me have volume. Okay, go ahead. Grace? Can you do the adan? Oh, no. That's. Um, I can't. Sorry. Okay. Hi everyone. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Subhanallah al-Aliy al-Azim walhamdulillahi rabbil alamin. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala al-Habib al-Mustafa Muhammad. Khatam al-Anbiya'i wa rusli ajma'in al-Mursal rahmatan lil-alamin. Wa ala alihi al-Athar al-Mayamin wa ala ashabihi al-Mukhtarin wa ala man ittaba'u bi-ihsanin ila yawm al-Din. اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحلل أقدة من لساني يفقه قولي First, uh, thank you Rami for this riveting introduction uh, And um, Where did we stop?
So, Shannon says we stopped at four. Um, why don't we uh, start with a quick recap so we can... Um, so we can just um, bring back the, the stream of thought. So we, we've talked about the Surat al-Ma'idah um, is the last major surah to be revealed in Medina. And that already sets Surat al-Ma'idah out and in a special status because indeed as as we will see the the, the tone and the theme of Surat al-Ma'idah itself um, from the tone and the theme it was clear that we are coming to an end of a phase and we'll we'll talk about this inshallah as we go on uh that many of the messages of surah al-baqarah were now being restated but with a different emphasis which we will inshallah talk about and that the prophet in fact died um 80 or 81 days uh, after the conclusion of Surah Al-Ma'idah. And so there, this places Surah Al-Ma'idah in a, in a very important position. One of the things that we will notice about Surah Al-Ma'idah as we go along is that it the way it deals, how do I put this? It often speaks, and this will become clear as we, we go along because right now it's just, an, a, a, I'm stating it in the abstract. The way it, it speaks um, it often sounds like it is either speaking about events that will take place in the future or about events that took place in the past. And this is one of, as we will see, the challenges that interpreters and commentators on the Quran uh, had with Surah Al-Ma'idah. So uh, when it talks about Al-Fatah, for instance, is it talking about Fatah Mecca or talking about another form of Fatah? When it talks about uh, relations with Jews and Christians, is it addressing dynamics that took place in the past or is it talking about dynamics that will take place in the future? So 
keep an eye out for the 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 the, the, the way that Surah al navigates the issue of time, of past, present, and future, because that will become important as well. Okay. And then we said that Surah Al-Ma'idah starts in a very interesting way because it simply calls for Al-Wafa' bin Aqud that, that to reminding believers of the obligation to honor their contracts. In a word, honor their promises because all contracts are a form of a promise um, and a, a promise that invokes an obligation because of a, a the, this promissory relationship, there is a dynamic that is created of obligation, duties, and rights. And This will become, this will be underscored later on in the surah, but why does it start with calling upon Muslims to observe their obligations or al-wafa' bil-aqud, to observe their contracts, and immediately moves on to talking about specific laws as to what um, what type of um, uh, meat is allowed or to, to be consumed or not allowed. Uh, and so on that, and I'm I'm skipping ahead a little bit here, but but it I think it will help us in in keeping track of what Surah Al-Maidah does. Surah Al-Maidah is going to come back to the central theme of Al-Mithaq of the covenant, and that. Allah will remind Muslims of the covenant struck with them, and Allah will also remind Muslims of the covenant that was struck with other people. And like Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah will remind Muslims the way in the, of the ways that previous recipients of the message violated the covenant. And warn Muslims about the consequences of violating the covenant. It is not an exaggeration to swear, to say that Surah Al-Ma'idah coming as the last revelation, it is, uh, Allah puts the covenant front and center. It's like saying the, the last thing and the most critical thing that you must remember is your entire life and your entire relationship with your Lord is premised on this promissory relationship that, as I mentioned last time, there, there's, there's simply 
no entitlements, and there are no, no rights without duties, and that obligations and the fulfillment of obligations is at the center of the whole dynamic of accountability. Part of that promissory relationship and part of that covenant is to understand that uh, something that Surat al-Ma'idah will emphasize uh, uh, very strongly is that different recipients of the divine message have different sha'ir. They have different ritualistic laws. And in my opinion, in, in fact, Surah Al-Ma'idah, the sense you get from it is that we are invited to understand some basic relationships about the ritualistic laws that were given to Jews, ritualistic laws that were given to Christians and then given to Muslims, but fundamentally to understand that the realm of ritualistic laws are God's province. And that attempting to scrutinize um, uh, too closely, why do Jews have the ritual of the Sabbath, while Muslims don't have the ritual of the Sabbath, for instance, will get you nowhere. It is because this is what Allah willed. But importantly, that each people are bonded by covenant to their own rituals. And that the intentionality of different rituals for different people are part of God's plan. But there is something very important in this, in that rituals, as I said in, in, in last halakha, are like alamat, they're like signposts. They're like the, 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 the uh, flagship of the faith. And so do not be, and, and this is why the surah immediately starts right after ufu bil talking about specific prohibitions of halal and haram, is that don't don't try or put differently. It it is a violation of your covenantal law. It is a violation of your covenantal relationship to try to deconstruct or dilute the rituals of your faith. And in other words, to say, well, we have Islam, but without the rituals. And we will see that, as I said last halaqa, that you know this is not just about eating pork or that you can't hunt when you are in a state of ihram or the sanctity of the four months of al-ashhur al-hurum or, or, or 
or the, the, that you can only consume meat that Allah's name has been mentioned upon, or that in general we only consume meat that has been properly slaughtered to empty the blood from the body uh, because the consumption of blood is haram. You can't, you know, you can't be a vampire, you can't drink blood. Um, but uh, Surah Al-Ma'idah gives us these basic laws, these basic rules that are part of the covenant and are essential to the covenantal relationship and cannot be diluted through rational processes, including the prohibition against gambling and the prohibition against the consumption of alcohol, as we will see in Surah Al-Ma'idah. And as I said in the last halaqah, that a very good example is when you see modern Muslims, you know, through some theories that try to extract the faith to, that ignore completely the covenantal relationship, that ignore the fact that you have a, a, a divine being with a will to try to make Islam contingent on human will and completely ejecting divine will of the process. And I gave the example of Shahab Ahmad's book, which basically, if, you, if you've read that book, uh, you know, the divine will has no, a divine will and a covenant with the divine will has no role to play whatsoever. Islam is purely a sociological, anthropological phenomena. And there is the, the, the pretext and the post-text and the ultra-text and so on, with the net result that you can dilute Sha'ar al-Islam. And this is precisely what Surah Al-Ma'idah is warning you about. That, and precisely warns us that this is the pitfall that previous people have fallen into and led to the dissolution of the covenant between God and those people. So I, this is all, I'm jumping ahead a bit, but it's helpful to understand why it starts out with Ufu bil And then right away it starts, it goes into the specifics of these unchangeable, ritualistically based, these are, you know, laws or sha'ir that are associated with, with Islam specifically that are permanent, non-contingent, and um, quite often beyond rational analysis and rational comprehension. Okay. I mean, so... The fact that you can't hunt when you are in a state of haram, you know, you can squeeze out some logical reasoning for it. But fundamentally, it's not about logic. It is about the divine will. 
and about a ritual, a part of the ritual of Islam, that although you are going to slaughter the animals of Al-Hajj, the animals brought to be slaughtered in the, in the meat, but you're not allowed to hunt, and you're not allowed to kill anything in a state of haram other than those animals that are brought to the sacrifice. Um, and Surah Al-Man, if you notice, it underscores that, you know, this is the rule, and you must abide by it, and doesn't even give a reasoning for that rule. Okay. Uh, so, you know, إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَحْكُمُ مَا يُرِيدُ So, don't hunt while you are in state of haram, and Allah rules as Allah wishes. So, you just have to accept it. You have to abide by it. Okay. And similarly, when in, in the in the right away, when it, we we've, as we've talked about last haqa, that لا تحل شعائر الله ولا الشهر الحرام ولا الهدي ولا القلائد ولا آمين البيت that again part of what Allah's will is and part of what you enter into in a, in a covenantal relationship is that you do not attempt to dilute the rituals that Allah decreed You observe al-ashhur al-hurum, the sanctity of the holy month, and you do not attempt to play rules because the, the reference, as I said, to not diverting the animals for slaughter is that some people could turn the whole dynamic of yield the process of animals brought for slaughter the meat of this uh, these animals are distributed to the poor in in a, a, a place that is supposed to become or supposed to be a a center of the Muslim world and a, a, a an asylum for the needy and an asylum for so that you cannot divert this sha'ira, this, this ritual, in order to achieve, for instance, business purposes, or to in, in order, to, for instance, to maximize profits, or in order to say, well, you know, um, let's ignore this particular ritual because it's more convenient to do so. And we talked about the ethical problematic of wala amin al-bayt, that the, you cannot even restrict or otherwise manipulate the dynamic of people who who are headed to al-bayt 
and do as we do today, for instance, and, and say, well, you know, we're going to yield this process to the dynamic of making money and making profits, which we I've talked about last halakha. Okay. And just, I, you know, lest I, I take more time, because I don't want to take more time going through everything. But what we talked about last halakha was very important. Um, that at the same time that Allah sort of anchors these ritualistic laws that you cannot consume the meat of, uh, um, of al-khanzir or you cannot c consume the meat of something that uh, fell to its death or uh, the, the, uh, something that was preyed upon by uh, by. Uh, another animal, or you cannot consume the meat of something that was suffocated to death. And Allah reminds us that this is the surah. This surah al-Ma'idah is the surah that completes your religion. And as you know, when Allah says, "Al-Yawm akmaltu lakum dinukum." That today Islam is being, this is the last message, the, the, the last revelation is being received. So now you will inherit the trust of Islam. What follows that? Um, Hold on. Hold on. Is it, um, yeah. No, wait. Oh, no, it's not what follows. Yeah, that's why I, I blanked out. What part of what is put forward immediately as, as as important as the ritual laws of Islam and and the ritual laws are critical to our covenantal relationship with Allah but what is also put forward as front and center to our covenantal relationship with Allah is our relationship to justice itself. And we've talked about this, that front and center, your relationship with justice and your relationship with bir, and as we said, bir is husn al-khuluq, is, is ethical character and virtue. And your relationship with taqwa is wedded to your covenantal relationship with Allah, that you are not free to define this covenantal relationship, for instance, while taking bitter out of the equation. 
or saying that we are we discharge this covenantal relationship without being is socially bonded to promote al-birr, to promote good moral ethical character and then pretend that you've in fact discharged your covenant with Allah it doesn't work similarly you cannot make aggression a, a, a an acceptable part of the equation in your covenant with Allah so these the opening few verses of Surah Al-Ma'idah are extremely powerful and that's why it took us the entire halaqah last week just going over the first four now we get to five now I'm not I because the juristic debates about this um you know they, they that's not the purpose you know I don't want to get into all the specific um, technicalities of the juristic debates but generally speaking in verse 5 we are told that the slaughter of other people of the book I mean Jews and Christians but most jurists even there are debates about whether for instance the, the slaughter of Zoroastrians is also halal and, you know the juristic debates are are um, that and there's also a debate whether um, the slaughter of the people of the book as long as you are sure that Allah's name was mentioned that God's name was mentioned so the, the closer that you know the, the you have as you have in Jewish law the the kosher process of slaughtering meat or whether you can as long as you mention Allah's name before consuming the meat then it's halal these are you know technical debates but as a broad rule with the caveat that there are you know technical issues of legal interpretation that come up that the slaughter of people of the book is allowed for Muslims or Muslims are allowed to consume the slaughter of people of the book and as well as in verse 5 um, maybe let's see. so okay this is uh, the Muhammad today all the good things of life have been made lawful to you and the food of those and the food of those who have been vouchsafed revelation aforetime is lawful to you the, the 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 people of the book or people who've received revelation uh, it's lawful for you to consume their their meat uh, 
and your food is lawful to them. Unlawful to you in wedlock women from those who believe in the divine writ. So women of people of the book are also, you're allowed to marry such women. And in wedlock women from among those who have been vouchsafed revelation before your time, provided that you give them their dowers, taking them in honest wedlock, not in fornication, nor as secret love companions. That is a taytumuhunna ajurahun muhassanin gaira musafihin wala muttakhidina akhdan. That you can. It has to be a proper marital relationship with a woman from a different faith as long as it is, uh, a, a, again, within the caveat people of the book, the Abrahamic, from at, at least the most clear category are Abrahamic religions, and that the, the proviso that make sure that this is not sifah, that this is not um, a sexual relationship that is not regulated by a contract, a marital contract, and not akhdan. Akhdan are secret lovers. Now, there are legal issues, you know, can seek are secret marriages, halal or haram, because of this verse, but Again, we, we, instead of getting into the legal debate about things like that, at what, what we can all agree upon is that Allah is warning us to make sure that even if we marry outside the faith, there are certain rules moral rules that cannot be contravened. You cannot have a sexual relationship without having the foundation of a contractual relationship in which there was a dower, in which there was an offer, in which there was an acceptance, in which there was, for the most, at least the majority opinion, in which there were witnesses, and that relationships have to be out in the open, that it has to be in the light of day, not a secretive uh, relationship where where the the, the potential for abuse um, and for things going wrong is much higher in any type of relationship which is conducted entirely in secret. Okay. Um, and then look at the, the, the it, you feel that in Surah Al-Ma'idah, it's as if you are receiving a summary of various things that are crucial and critical to this faith from the prohibition against aggression to the call for justice to the various specific rules as to what type of meat you are allowed to consume to now with 
ayah 6 about abolitions for prayer. يا أيها الذين آمنوا إذا قمتم للصلاة إذا قمتم إلى الصلاة فاغسلوا وجوهكم وأيديكم إلى المرافق وامسحوا برؤوسكم وأرجلكم إلى الكعبين. So if you are going to pray, make sure that you wash what we basically will do. That you wash your hands, you wash your face, um, that you uh, pass water over your head, that you wash your feet. That if you are uh, in an impure state, in, in a state of janaba, that you properly uh, wash to get rid of that janaba. And then it's addressing a specific issue of what happens if you are ill or traveling. Um, uh, If you are ill or traveling or in a state of impurity and water was not available now we get into again in in legal sources you get into these long discussions about what does it mean when it says water is not available does it mean that you are traveling uh, or, or, or and water is uh, scarce so either you save the water for drinking or you use it for wudu and that tayammum is is basically where you um, uh, do your your ghusl and or all your wudu without water. Is it in situations of scarcity of water or situations where water is not available at all? But we don't need to get into that. The the, the core though is the importance of ritual, the importance of ritualistic laws. As we said, Sha'ir al-Islam as flagships that set out the recipients of the Muhammadian message, the message from the Prophet Muhammad And as, of course, what becomes a significant principle in Islamic law ما يريد الله ليجعل عليكم من حرج ولكن يريد ليطهركم that Allah does not it is not Allah's will to impose hardship on you but to purify you and here because we are it, it, this includes tayammum which means you know using dust to uh, perform abolitions or form tahara it is tahara is that is spoken about here is not f- just physical cleanliness, but spiritual cleanliness. That you are ever mindful of that the covenantal relationship with Allah requires that you be in a state of vigilance. Do not simply forget that. The, the obligation and the struggle to purify um, 
as part, as a critical part of this covenantal relationship. Now, of course, in because not just from this uh, uh, revelation, but because it's a constant theme of the Quran that Allah does not wish upon, that the point is not hardship, it's not, the point is not to make people suffer, this has a huge influence in Islamic law and all the legal debates as to what, how do you define hardship, what is the effect of hardship on a legal ruling, uh, what mechanisms are available in legal methodology to avoid rules that cause hardship. Remarkably, um, you know, um, when when people are in a, when people are in a state of civilizational um, confidence when 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 people's civilization is flourishing and they are looking at norms seeking to achieve ideals that they defined for themselves. You find discussions about things like hardship and necessity and equity in law uh, and things like that. You find that these debates are driven by an internal impulse that is not reacting to, it's not defensive. It's simply being stated in order to maximize the best interest um, without any regard to what an external or a foreign eye thinks about these legal discourses and legal debates. When, when law discusses things like public interest, necessity, hardship, equity, under the pressure of foreign oversight or under the pressure of being defensive towards uh, the external influence by a foreign legal system or foreign systems, uh, these debates in law become um, impoverished and become largely apologetic and largely reactive uh, because they're they're constantly responding to a to they're constantly responding to a, a conflicting audiences the the domestic audience the recipients of the law. And the foreign audience that they are they're reacting to. So, not surprisingly, you know, the best discussions in Islamic law about hardship and equity um, are are all uh, pre-colonialism. Once colonialism begins. 
you find that the quality of these discussions in Islamic law become very frantic and very ideological rather than responding to an internal impetus or internal norm. Anyway, okay. All right. Then we get to seven. So we said we began with a covenant, with, with a reference to the promissory obligation. And here was Remember, Allah's blessings, ni'matuhu, that the gift that Allah gave you. Now, this is as this community what as we said these ritualistic laws are part of a covenant that you received Allah's covenant and that you entered into this covenant Mithaq is a covenant and that at least those who are not wavering and those who are not part of the, those inflicted with hypocrisy, you know, the, the, those of you who are solid Muslims, upon receiving this covenant, you committed, you entered into a promissory obligation. Why? Because you've said Samiana Watana. We've we hear and we obey. Okay. And and again for the millionth time Allah reminds the audience that Allah knows what is in your hearts, knows what is in your sadr or sudur plural that your commitment to this covenant and your understanding of this covenant is something that you don't even you, you don't need to explain you don't need to articulate because allah knows what's in your heart okay and central as you see in verse 8 that in this covenantal relationship 
is that you will be steadfast in your relationship to Allah. Qawamina lillah. You, your steadfastness, your perseverance will be for the sake of Allah. But what does this perseverance do? What is this, this what is the main function of the steadfastness? Is that you will attest to justice. But here, not just attest, Al-Qa'im is not someone who is just witnessing, but someone who is achieving. Al-Qa'im is someone who serves something. So you will be constantly the servants. You will be steadfast for the sake of Allah, constantly serving Iqust, constantly serving justice. And because Allah knows why human beings often fail in their relationship to justice, and that often human beings abandon their quest in justice for justice when they suffer an injustice, that human beings often dilute their commitment to justice because they always use the excuse of, well, you know, why should I play by the rules when others don't? Or, you know, I am so misunderstood, I'm so underappreciated, I am so undervalued, so why should I be just? So immediately, Allah, if we didn't get it the first time at the beginning of the surah, well, here it is front and center. Don't let either your dislike of other people or your complaint about other people or any antipathy towards other people distract you from the obligation of justice. Justice itself is necessary for taqwa or your 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 determination in serving justice is necessary for taqwa and remember this simple principle principle of amal salihat that you are constantly obligated to serve goodness. Now, notice how all this language, as I've emphasized in so many khutab, in so many uh, Friday sermons, and in so many, all of this language, it, it is engaging an epistemological being. It's engaging a being that is vested in a world of meanings. And it assumes 
that the recipient of this message is capable of thinking about things like justice, the corruption of justice, the what hardship means, what equity means, um, what fairness means, and what vindictiveness means. If if the recipient of these words is, for whatever reason, emotionally committed or psychologically committed to not giving these words a fair meaning, in other words, undermining the meaning of these words by saying, for instance, well, you know, if if someone, you know, just, you know, uh, um, as we will see in Surat al-Ma'idah itself. Well, you know, if a poor person dares to insult a rich person, they should be punished very differently than the rich, if a rich insults the poor. And subhanAllah, we'll see this in Surat al-Ma'idah. If your, if your relationship to justice itself is skewed, as again we'll see when Allah talks about what particular Jewish groups did in relationship to justice, where, as we will see, these Jewish groups said, well, you know, an honorable person from an honorable family cannot be punished the same way like a person from a common family. The entire dynamic for the covenant doesn't work. And as we will see, Allah explains to Muslims, this will come later in Surah Al-Ma'idah, that understand that the reason we needed this message, the Muhammadian message, is because of the corruptions of the past. And the corruptions of the past occurred because you had people who were committed to undermining the basic values that define the covenantal relationship. The word justice itself for them became corrupted because it included privilege and it included, for instance, the idea that it is consistent with justice that we're a chosen people. What do you do with people who tell you, well, no, yeah, of course, it, it, there's no problem with the, for the idea of justice. It does not challenge the idea of justice that God chooses us as God's favorite and privileges us with entitlements that other human beings are denied with. And they will invent, obviously, a mythology to justify that by telling you, well, you know, we God loves us in particular because... Uh, you know, we were the recipients of the first monotheistic message uh, because we are a suffering people and God wants to compensate us for our history of uh, endless suffering. Uh, we are a people that were given the obligation to always be the conscience of humanity. So that's why God chose us or we're chosen because we always play the, the, the role of the conscience for, for humanity. You know, whatever the, the various 
in endless ability of a human being to rationalize what is inconsistent with intuitive knowledge of right and wrong. And we'll see this, subhanAllah, in Surah Al-Ma'idah in itself. But core is this while the Quran earlier told us that you must be steadfast in serving justice, bearing witness, or serving God. Here, at the end of the message, it's as if Allah can, you know, finishes the loop, the circle, and says, instead, as the Quran said before, now Allah says, it is as if justice and Allah, you cannot serve Allah without serving justice, and you cannot serve justice without serving Allah. You cannot bear witness in the service of justice without it being in the service of Allah, and you cannot bear witness in the service of Allah without it being in the service of justice. It is only in the Quran where this inextricable relationship is created between Allah and justice. And in Surah Al-Ma'idah, it's finally, it's sort of the, the circle is, clo- is closed in terms of Al-Qiyam Lillah, that you are, whether you are standing steadfast serving justice or serving God, bearing witness for God or bearing witness for justice, it is all a closed circle. It's an it's it's interlinked and it cannot be separated um, or set apart. Now Um, of course, ten is, is obvious. There's nothing I'm going to say about it. Uh, yeah, then uh, eleven. Notice eleven. Again. Believers, Allah calls upon calls upon the believers. Remember Allah's blessings when there were a hostile people were about to take action against you, and Allah stayed the hands of these hostile people. In other words, Allah prevented this hostility. 
from going further, from becoming a, a source of harm for you. Um, again, several things. One is that this is very, as we'll see in several things in Surah Al-Ma'idah, Allah, in, in the last chapter of the Qur'an, the last revelation, Allah is not celebrating hostility. Allah is not saying, go forth, be hostile, and antagonize the world. In fact, Allah is reminding Muslims that the... Um, what is the word I'm looking for? The um, not the dilution, but the, the dissipation of hostility. The uh, the fact that Allah intervenes to diffuse hostility between you and a people—that's a blessing. And remember, this this comes right after, or part of the instruction about justice. So, as you ponder justice, and ponder how is it to be, how is it to live serving justice, and in a covenantal relationship with your Lord. In the same way that Allah earlier told us what knowledge you possess, even the knowledge that you can use to train animals, that's Allah's knowledge. Here Allah is telling us peace, and again as Surah Al-Ma'idah will make clearer later, peace itself is a blessing from Allah. When you see that instead of hostility or the diffusion of hostility, don't take that for granted. That, in fact, it, and in fact, it, 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 taking it for granted could be contrary to the very principles of justice. Um, now, there are many different reports about, again, in quotes, occasions for revelations uh, for this area. It was said that once one set of reports is that the Prophet ﷺ went to Banu Nadir, the, tri the Jewish tribe of Banu Nadir, to ask them for help in paying the dia the blood money for an offense and that they um, were planning to assassinate him and that Allah warned him and and another set of reports talk about um, a man called Ghawrath bin Ibn al-Harth um, and that Ghawrath Ibn al-Harth uh, uh, finds the 
Prophet ﷺ sleeping under a palm tree. He goes to him and he says, you know, who will now protect you? You're alone. No one is around you. Uh, who will protect you from my sword? And he's about to assassinate the Prophet. And the Prophet said, Allah will protect me. And then uh, Allah causes the sword to fall from Ghawras's hand. Um, and Ghawras finds himself paralyzed, unable to hurt the Prophet. And then the Prophet picks up the sword and he says, who will protect you now from me? And, you know, Ghawras says, you know, please spare my life. And the Prophet spares his life. And then thereupon Ghawras converts to Islam. The narrative about Banu Nadir and the Prophet going to them to ask for help with Udiyya and that they wanted to assassinate him is very flimsy. Um, the terms of the, the narrations of this report and the way that it is, you know, uh, claimed to be somehow the occasion for a revelation of, uh, I mean, as some modern researchers have pointed out, is that although we are told that Banu Quraiza and Banu Nadir were vanquished from Medina by the time Surah Al-Ma'idah is revealed, interestingly enough, they do, they are mentioned in various reports as if they were still there. And it, it has raised a question in the mind of some historians whether in fact the narratives about the expulsion of Banu Nadir and Banu Nadir, uh, ban, sorry, Banu Quraiza and Banu Nadir um, were accurate, whether in fact it was just a partial expulsion, not a full expulsion. This is a bigger issue. But the narrative that you know about this this supposed assassination attempt by Banu Nadir as an occasion for revelation is very suspect. The story of Ghawras ibn al-Harith, you know, did it it might have very very well taken place. I mean, this might have been an actual story that the the companions report that they they walked upon they found the prophet sitting with a sword in his lap, uh, chatting with Ghawras ibn al-Harith, and then when they, they uh, you know, inquired what's going on, and then they were told that Ghawras ibn al-Harith just converted, and because he, he showed up trying to assassinate the prophet and end up converting to Islam, etc., etc. You know, I, I, I have no reason to suspect the veracity of the story. Um, in, in all likelihood, it it could have very well happened, as described. But was it an occasion for the revelation of Ayah number eleven? Uh, very doubtful. I mean, just even look at the language. Is hamma qawmun ayyub sutu ilaykum aydiyahu? That if if 
when a people were about to harm you because of their hostility, it's obviously talking about more than just an individual who you know goes and tries to assassinate the Prophet Um so it's not, I mean, and, and the more I looked into it, it's, in my opinion, it's clear that, again, as some commentators have tended to do with the Quran, is that they, they, they find reports in the seerah and they say, oh, well, this seems to fit. Let's say it's an, it's an occasion for revelation. Uh, it doesn't work. But... There were many examples of various tribes from the beginning of the Medina period to the end of the Medina period that that Muslims were keen or were hoping that they won't jump on the bandwagon of Mecca or the bandwagon of Khaybar or the bandwagon of uh, being allied with the Byzantians against, in other words, Muslims were hoping that these tribes won't be, won't join the enemies. And some of these tribes even became known as that, that those who uh, who the, the Prophet ﷺ, you know, tried to gain their favor and tried to appease, to avoid their hostility. And so this ayah describes many situations in which one can exactly say, but for Allah's favor, but for Allah's blessings, this tribe would have become one of the people, one of the uh, 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 groups fighting Muslims, and it is only in the in the reality of imperial Islam, where verses in the Quran like this became de-emphasized, where Allah is saying, "Remember that the avoidance of hostility is a blessing." And that this is often a gift from Allah. Now, of course, in, in imperial Islam, you, you're often emphasizing the parts of the Quran that, that are talking about being macho and being powerful and being, um, you know, dominant and aggressive. And, but it is clear that when Allah is trying to get us to think about justice, in the same way Allah is saying, don't be cowards, don't surrender or lay over and let people walk all over you. Don't betray your causes and let people expel you from your homes and deny you your rights and then say, oh, we forgive you. In the same way, in the same vein, that part of thinking about justice is thinking about the other side, that there are people who could have been your enemies, but... It is a, truly a blessing from Allah when Allah intervenes so that those who could have been your enemies, in fact, do not become your enemies. Okay.
Now, Surah Al-Ma'idah is going to shift gears in a very important way, in a very critical way. Um, before we get into that, let's take a two-minute break. Two minutes. Two minutes and a half. Okay, make it two minutes and a half. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Now, of course, you recall that as soon as the Surah Al-Baqarah was, as soon as the Medina period started, Surah Al-Baqarah focuses on educating Muslims as to the recipients of the previous covenants and what precisely um, or explaining the ways that the, the, the recipients of the previous covenants had failed this, these covenants. And as we said, that when the Quran talks about Jews or Christians, the, the point is not, the, 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 the point is educational. The point is that you understand from what it says about the dynamics with Jews and Christians, what Muslims should learn. Um, and we see this in, in Surah Al-Ma'idah, the Quran returns to the same themes Um, but the message to Muslims is even clearer and more pointed. So, وَلَقَدْ أَخَذَ اللَّهُ مِثَاقَ بَنِي إِسْرَائِيلِ وَبَعَثْنَا مِنْهُمْ إِثْنَا عَشَرَ نَقِيبًا وَقَالَ اللَّهُ إِنِّي مَعَكُمْ لَإِنَّ أَقَمْتُمُ الصَّلَاةُ وَآتَيْتُمُ الزَّكَاةُ وأمنتم برسلي وعزرتموهم وأقرضتم الله قرضا حسنا لأكفرن عنكم سيئاتكم ولأدخلنكم جنات تجري من تحتها الأنهار فمن كفر بعد ذلك منكم فقد ضل سواء السبيل This is 12 فبما نقضهم ميثاقهم لعنهم الله وجعلنا قلوبهم قاسية يحرفون كلمة عن مواضعه ونسوا حظا مما ذكروا به ولا تزالوا تطلع على خائنة منهم إلا قليلا منهم فاعف عنهم واصفح إن الله يحب المحسنين So let's first go through the translations on and God accepted is a Muhammad Asad puts in brackets similar and God accepted a similar solemn pledge from the children of Israel when God caused 12 of their leaders to be sent to Canaan as spies. And God said, Behold, I shall be with you if you are constant in prayer and spend in charity and believe in my apostles and aid them and offer up unto God a goodly loan. 
I will surely efface your bad deeds and bring you into gardens through which running waters flow. But he from among you who after this denies the truth will indeed have strayed from the right path. Then 13. Then for having broken their solemn pledge, we rejected them and caused their hearts to harden, so that now they distort the meaning of the revealed words, taking them out of their context. And they have forgotten much of what they have been told to bear in mind. And, for, and from all but a few of them, thou wilt always experience treachery. But pardon them and forbear, verily God loves the doers of good. Okay, so first, the story of the 12 elders who are sent to bring back information about the land of Canaan and the uh, forces of Canaan. Um, this, of course, is a is a story referenced in by in the Bible, and it is told in a greater detail uh, in the Bible. Um, so, for instance, in in the Old Testament, you you will find that. The Old Testament will list the names of um, uh, the the elders, you know, the, from the tribe of Reuben, uh, Shamua, son of Zakur, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, son of Hori, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, son of Jephone, and, and so on. And And as Surah Al-Ma'idah and, uh, and the Bible as well, we'll, we'll come back to this. There is a, a serious betrayal of the covenant when it came to the 12 elders and the attitude of the various Israelite tribes um, But note that in the Quran, unlike in the Old Testament, the conditions for whether Allah is with, continues to be in support of the tribes of Israel is hinged, as the Quran says, لَإِنْ أَقَمْتُمُ الصَّلَاةِ that the conditions is that you uphold salah, uphold prayers, and you uphold the obligation of, of beneficence, of taking care of the needy. And you abide by the messages of the prophets that came before who who spell out the terms of the covenant 
and you engage in that same obligation that Allah sets out for Muslims. hasanan. That it is as if in everything you do, you are dealing with God directly in 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 firmly committing to the idea that your rewards for putting up front or serving what is good and doing what's right in this world is to be rewarded in the next so that you are as um, how does Muhammad Asa translate translate this um, and offer up unto God a goodly loan which is as we know is repeatedly something underscored as essential to the obligation between God or the relationship between God and Muslims that This was essential to honoring and preserving the covenant. But then we are told that because they are, because they consistently violated their covenant, they failed to honor their covenant. The consequences are scary and it's scary when you fully understand the implications first they their hearts became obstinate and cruel Instead of hearts that respond to the call of duty or hearts that easily uh, embraces the obligation of care, that you, you care about one another, you recognize the value in one another, That is a gift and a blessing in the same way that Allah avoiding or Allah inspiring people not to fight with you is a blessing. Alienation from God. You know, it's... um, When you often find a, a, a people that despite the existence of all the right ideas, but something in, 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 in sort of a consistent pattern that these people fail to embrace the, the, the clear values that would bring them closer to justice or bring them closer to mercy or bring them closer to kindness. Qaswat uh, al-Qalb, an obstinate heart, a, 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 a cruel heart. 
And in this situation, as we will see, it's not just that the the the, the that God allows their heart to to go astray, but that they usurp the meanings of words. This is what I, I was talking about earlier. The, the meanings of essential words like justice or like vengeance or that words, and, and in fact, one of the, the, the consistent themes that we will see, like what was, was emphasized in Surah Al-Baqarah, is that the the interpretive dynamics that not just the corrupting of the corruption of revelation in the sense of altering what the actual words are in treatises or in the text, but the interpretation of these words becomes absent and resistant to the very moral purposes that the words were intended to serve. So, and Allah notes that you still see an effect of this. As Muhammad Asad puts it, let's, let's see, that in fact, to this very day, you will find that you still experience quite a bit of treachery from them. What is the reason for this treachery? It is not something innate in a people. It is not something in the race on the ethnicity or even in the, the text. But it is the result of a lack of commitment to the moral values that would counsel people against treachery. And where the, what is the reason for this lack of commitment is a sense of entitlement. Yeah, a sense of, of we are privileged that the moral rules, and in this case, the, the, the whole premise of the chosen people that the rules that would normally apply or the morals and the ethics that would normally apply to dealing with human beings do not apply when it is us, the chosen people, dealing with the common people, the, the, the people who are not privileged and not part of God's special club. So, وَلَا تَزَالُوا تَطَّلِعُوا عَلَىٰ خَائِنَةٍ مِّنْهُمْ إِلَّا قَلِيلًا مِّنْهُمْ That you, you, will, you will see the results of the way that the interpretive processes were corrupted. That instead of understanding that the covenant is about a moral dynamic and a moral relationship, they took the covenant as an entitlement. And because they took the covenant as an entitlement, they justified for themselves the constant narrative 
in which they privilege themselves with exceptional rules that normal ethical morality doesn't apply when it comes to dealing with others. And it is extremely significant that Allah reminds the Prophet, look, you see the effects of this. Now, Allah is not saying this to describe what is going on with Jews, but to educate Muslims about what they must avoid. So, put simply, if you Muslims break the covenant, you Muslims will suffer, in turn, qulub qasiyah. You will be the people who have hardened hearts, cruel hearts, obstinate hearts, hearts that do not respond to the truth, hearts that do not respond to the call of moral values. You Muslims will find yourself trapped in the dynamics of hearing God's words, hearing God's instructions, but consistently corrupting the interpretation and the meaning where justice no longer means justice. Mercy no longer means mercy. All the, 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 the very revelation that you have, it, let me, there is a debate in the Islamic tradition whether when Allah talks about Jews and Christians corrupting God's revelation, is the corruption in interpretation or in the corruption is the corruption in copying, meaning that words themselves were altered or in fact the main corruption is in the interpretive process. What a lot of modern Muslims do not realize is that it was several a strong view in the Islamic tradition was that the corruption was primarily in the, in the interpretive process. Now, we know, I think it is fair to say, that we know that as a historical matter, whatever Moses or whatever Jesus taught, that it was recorded a substantial period of time after their death and that people were working from general memories. And we also know that the, the manuscript, the, the, the manuscript tradition of the, especially the New Testament, shows clear corruptions in the copies from the various translations from Greek or Latin or you know, Hebrew translations. So unlike earlier Muslims that were, were, were debating this in the abstract, we know that in fact the text of the New Testament has a percentage of what people probably credibly remembered Jesus saying. Um, and it, it, 
a lot of these sayings, in fact, are similar to what the Prophet, so for instance, when the Prophet says, you know, uh, one of you does not believe unless I am uh, more beloved to them than their mother or their father. Matthew reports the same thing about Jesus, that Jesus said something very similar. The source is the same. So it's probably a, a, a credible report about what Jesus in fact said because the source is the same. You find both prophets, Jesus and Muhammad, are saying the same thing. But at the same time, there are numerous corruptions that crept in because of the historical dynamic of the the copying of the text and the various political functions that the text played. But in addition to that, there are the corruptions of interpretation. And this is a, 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 for instance, nowhere does Jesus say in the New Testament that nowhere does Jesus claim to be divine. Nowhere does Jesus say that he is God or in any way divine. That's not a corruption in the manuscript, that's a corruption in the in the interpretation. Although Jesus nowhere in the New Testament claims to be divine, the way the text was interpreted was to attribute divinity to Jesus. So we in in you know in, with all the, the 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 studies that are available to us and can comfortably say that there are corruptions in both. Both in the actual copying of the text and in the interpretation of the text. But when we read what Allah talks, what Allah says about Jews and Christians in Surah Al-Baqarah or Surah Al-Ma'idah, we often approach this as if this is about Christians or Jews. It's not. It, it, the, the reason Allah is telling us about this is to warn us. This is about being Muslim and the pitfalls that Allah is warning you about as Muslims. And that is why, as I said before, unlike the Bible, the Quran doesn't bother telling you the details, the specifics of historical narratives. They're irrelevant. The most significant thing is that you understand the moral lesson, not the names of, you know, the elders from the 12 tribes and who they were or what, you know, clan they came from as the Bible does. Okay. Now, notice because we tend partly because of what Muslims themselves did interpretively with the Quran from the imperial age and partly because of the influence of Orientalism we ignore very obvious points that this late in the game, 
we are talking the last year of Hijrah. What does the Quran say about, okay, the, Allah is telling us about how the Israelites violated their covenant. And that the consequences of violating the covenant. Does Allah tell us, tells us this to, uh, to teach us to look down upon these people or to hate these people or to despise these people? In fact, this late in the final year of the Hijrah, well, Allah says, فَعْفُ عَنْهُمْ because Orientalists, when they often talk about the Islamic tradition, they'll tell you, oh, you know, all the messages of forgiveness were in the Mecca era. But then when the Prophet went into the Medina era, era, all forgiveness went out of the door. A little bit of Quran literacy. And you find this, by the way, in all the Islamophobic literature that... that impacts Muslims so heavily. A little bit of Quranic literacy would disabuse you of these notions very easily. And this is a response also to, you know, the types that tell you, oh, all the, the verses of forgiveness were abrogated. Then you would have to accept that what came earlier would abrogate what comes later, which is, as, as we said, is nonsensical. the proof that this is not about what you what you should think about Jews and Christians, but this is about the lesson you learn from their precedent, is that Allah says, ultimately, when it comes to, to them and what your attitude towards them should be, you should you should forgive which is, uh, you know, it's like um, forgive and and an even greater forgiveness. In um, that because Allah loves those who are beneficent, those who are kind, those who indeed forgive and not look look down upon people. But you need to understand that. If you follow in the footsteps of those who received the covenant before and violated the covenant, the same consequences that befell them could befall you as Muslims. Okay. So, the Quran will return to the 12 elders again for, with a different emphasis or in Surah Al-Ma'idah. But for now, let's just move on with with the order of Surah Al-Ma'idah itself. وَمِنَ الَّذِينَ قَالُوا إِنَّ نَصَارَ أَخَذْنَا مِيثَاقَهُمْ فَنَسُوا حَظًا مِمَّا ذُكِّرُوا بِهِ فَأَغْرَيْنَا بَيْنَهُمْ الْعَدَاوَةَ وَالْبَغْضَاءَ إِلَى يَوْمِ الْقِيَامَةَ وَسَوْفَ يُنْبِئُهُمُ اللَّهُ بِمَا كَانُوا يَصْنَعُونَ Again, it's mind-blowing because there was another covenant given 
to those who call themselves Nasara, the supporters of Christ. And they again forgot an essential part of their covenant. Now, remember that this is before the Reformation. This is when the only form of Christianity is Catholic Christianity, church-based uh, or, you know, the, the uh, various forms of papacy-based Christianity. The, the reason I I'm always remind us is that it is easy to um, forget that when the Quran is revealed, the the only, not just the predominant, but the primary, the, the, the only surviving form of Christianity was a Christianity that was based on entitlements and privilege centered in the church. The church can do no wrong. And the whole Reformation was about challenging and I believe the Reformation was clearly inspired by Islam. I mean, it, it, it's and in fact, it, it is a challenge of Islam, and the, what Christians saw happen with the Muslim world that sparked the entire Reformation. But when the Quran is revealed, that the God speaks through the Church, and if the Church says. Uh, you know, you buy um, um, uh, forgiveness certificates or you, the you church is entitled to the following riches and the following wealth. There, there is no way you can challenge the monopoly that the church has over the vo voice of the divine. And so when Allah says that those who supported Christ have breached the covenant of what Christ had taught, it becomes quite clear in what ways that happened when you think of the historical moment. And I mean, even beyond the historical moment because of the, the very idea of the Trinity. But it, 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 the, the, the historical context is important and understanding the historical moment is important. And as a result, we come back to this theme of people who receive the covenant and betray the covenant losing track of their priorities and engaging in infighting. In other words, whether it is harsh heart, as with the Jews, 
or al-adawa or al-baghda that they are at each other's throats what is the essential point here the essential point is that they no longer respond to the call of normative moral values they cannot put a moral value ahead of their pettiness their sense of entitlement and privilege they 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 read what Jesus said about love but they they can't turn it into a lived philosophy they read it but when when they act they act in ways that are completely contrary to it they read what Moses said about justice but they can't translate what Moses said about justice into challenging the idea of a chosen and privileged people who somehow are above other human beings entitled to what human beings are not entitled are not cannot enjoy um now pause here because this is really critical now when you read 12 and 13 in surah al-ma'idah does it remind you of someone not jews and christians what is truly sad is that it this perfectly describes Muslims today. Qulub qasiyah, hearts that are harsh, obstinate, resistant. I mean, after all, we can sit and watch what's happening to Muslims in China and hardly any effect. We can sit and watch what is happening to the Rohingyas. Nothing. We can sit and watch what's going on in Palestine. We can even hear about the violations of, against the Aqsa Mosque on a regular and steady basis, and you'll still find plenty of Muslims around the world you know, reacting, they care more about how graves are, Muslim graves are constructed than about whether Al-Aqsa Mosque is being violated, the sanctity of Al-Aqsa Mosque is being violated or not. They see no problem with why can't we respect someone like Bin Baya who never says is single moral word about what's going on with Palestinians who is happy to meet any fanatic criminal you know regardless of how criminal the history of the Israeli and and happy to shake hands with them and sit with them why because his bosses in, in, in the Emirat tell him to do so and yet you'll find plenty of Muslims don't see any problem with respecting someone like Bin Bayah it doesn't phase them. I, I mean, 
It, it's a perfect description. Kulub qasiya, hearts that no longer feel for their fellow Muslim, no, no longer cares. And al adawa al baghda, you will find today. I mean, I I I detest social media among the many reasons. The amount of vehemence and hate I hear between Sunnah, the Sunnah and Shia, I can't I can't read a Salafi website that doesn't say the most vile, evil, disgusting things about the Shia. Wallahi al-Azim, they would never talk about Israelis that way. They don't say the same things about the, the, the Chinese government. They don't say anything about the, the, the Burmese government. But they describe the Shia as the Majus, like people who worship fire, and as the, uh, the, the products of Abdullah ibn Saba. Abdullah ibn Saba, uh, the, 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 the Jew who pretended to convert to Islam, and, and they, they convinced themselves that all of the Shia are a product of the invention of Abdullah ibn Saba, which is, I mean, you want to talk about people who corrupt interpretation? Because any, even just mildly literate reading of history would clearly disabuse a person of the idea that Abdullah ibn Saba is the inventor of Shiism. But I am telling you, in Salafi circles, it, it is taken as an article of faith. It is Abdullah ibn Saba who invented Shiism. And you try to reason with, with that logic, there is no way of reasoning. And you hear all that, you know, I, I, I now, you know, do, I, I, I do everything, you know, to avoid going on these websites because I am traumatized by how often I read Oh, the, the Shia are worse on, and more dangerous on, for Islam than the Israelis and the, you know, the, the, uh, every other force. It, 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 and I, I remember what Allah warned us about in Surah Al-Ma'idah. You, you're not talking about, you're not talking about a few thousand Muslims. You're talking about millions of Muslims. So whether you are Shia hating Sunnis or Sunnis hating Shia, what's your solution? If you have millions of Muslims believe in something, you are bound to accept, respect the plausibility of these beliefs, whether you agree with them or not. Because the alternative is truly immoral. The alternative is genocide and massacre. But look at how Allah warned us about the consequences of breaking the covenant and how we see 
the results of breaking the covenant. As I keep saying, Allah warned us not to get us to form an opinion about the, the moral character of Jews and Christians. Allah warned us to get us to look introspectively within. And so when you read Surah Al-Ma'idah, it's a terrifying surah because it, it puts a mirror right within, in, deep into your soul so that you constantly ask yourself, well, how about us? What have we done with the covenant? Okay. يَا أَلِ الْكِتَابِ قَدْ جَاءَكُمْ رَسُولُنَا يُبَيِّنُ لَكُمْ كَثِيرًا مِمَّا كُنْتُمْ تُخْفُونَ مِنَ الْكِتَابِ وَيَعْفُ عَنْ كَثِيرٌ قَدْ جَاءَكُمْ مِنَ اللَّهِ مِنَ اللَّهِ نُورٌ وَكِتَابٌ مُبِينٌ يَهْدِي بِهِ اللَّهُ مَنْ اتَّبَعَ الرِّضْوَانَهُ سُبُلَ السَّلَامِ وَاخْرِجْهُمْ مِنَ الظُّلُمَاتِ إِلَى النُّورِ بِإِذْنِهِ وَيَهْدِيهِمْ إِلَى صِرَاطٍ مُسْتَقِيمٍ So this is uh, 15 and 16. So, um, okay, followers of the book or followers of the Bible, now there has come unto you our apostle to make clear unto you much of what you have been concealing from yourselves of the Bible. And to overlook much, or to pardon much, now there has come unto you from God a light and a clear divine writ, through which God shows unto all that seek God's goodly acceptance, the past leading to salvation, and by God's grace brings them out of the depths of darkness into the light and guides them unto a straight way. Indeed, oh, okay, let's stop here. Okay. So, a couple of things. Sure, what Allah says, people of the book, you, I've sent a prophet now addressing things that you have been concealing and overlooking other things. Sure, this includes the prediction of the coming of a descendant from Ishmael, as we've talked about before, as I read to you from the text of the Bible, that the Bible itself says that there will, from the descendant of Ishmael, they will come uh, the apostle and so on. Sure, that's part of it. Sure, that it is it, it is referencing the issue of the divinity of Jesus, for instance, that the that often and, and this has been a, a long issue, the, the 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 Catholic Church at the time the Quran was revealed. Remember that the Catholic Church insisted on maintaining the text of the Bible in Latin. Uh, or at least the, the church in, uh, in uh, Byzantium. And, uh, or, you know, uh, for in uh, even the Egyptian church, for instance, in, in 
Coptic Greek. And the common person was not allowed or it was considered an offense to pick up the Bible or obtain a copy of the Bible and read it by yourself. You were only allowed to read the selections picked for you by the church. You, you, you didn't, common person, well, I mean, if even assuming you're literate, but literacy rates were very low. But even if you're literate, you, you did not have the, 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 the privilege or the right to just, oh, you know, walk into a bookstore and buy a copy of the Bible and, and, and read it. That's actually, it was a violation of can, canonical law. Uh, you, there was a whole process. The church had to uh, to approve or had to permit you, and one of parts of what the, the Luther and the Reformation rebelled against was that rule in the Catholic Church. Um, so, why am I saying that? Because the Catholic Church guarded very carefully the fact that nowhere in the New Testament is Jesus say he's divine. And it was it was only after you know people started reading the, the text or having direct access to the text of the Bible where they start saying, well, you know, wait a minute. Uh, and then the, the answer of the Catholic Church at that point, and also the answer of the Protestant is oh well, you know, Jesus uh, you know, implied that he's divine, but he couldn't say that he was divine because if he would have done that, they would have killed him. And you know, we get into all the the uh, the the apologetica of Christianity. Um. So the Quran is referring to these historical realities. But the Quran is also referring to corruptions in interpretation in, of the text itself. So, for instance, one of the, as the Quran challenges, the, the idea that in Jewish law, dealing the prohibition against usury was effective only when as to Jew dealing with a Jew, but that when a Jew is dealing with non-Jew, then the prohibition against usury does not apply. These were corruptions of interpretation. And part of what the Prophet does is to recenter the compass of morality. And that is why it is particularly unfortunate, as we will see in Surah Al-Ma'idah, and, and, and um, again, all of this will become very clear, that, um, that it is quite unfortunate when you find then Muslim jurists in the, in the imperial age of Islamic law, saying things like, uh, well, you know, a, um, 
the worth of a Christian life is not equal to the worth of a Muslim life. Because it is precisely, the, these are precisely the type of corruptions of interpretation that the Prophet Muhammad came to fix. These were precisely the issues that the Prophet Muhammad came to challenge and negate and to say morality is indivisible. You don't have ethics that only apply amongst Jews or amongst Christians, but don't apply when you're dealing with the other. Now, sure, not in every case, but imperial Islamic law often did not live up to this ideal. But there always remained within the dynamics of Islamic law those who recognized the ethical ideals. So in other words, it was never unanimously the case that the ethical ideals were uh, were abandoned in Islamic law. Okay. So when when we talk about concealing what is in the book, and the and Allah saying, "I sent a prophet that reveals the truth." It is important to understand that we are not just talking about, you know, things like that relate to the the coming of the prophet. As you as you find in Quranic commentaries, you know, they'll always tell you, "Oh, this refers to them concealing the uh, the coming of Muhammad." As, but it's not only that. It is not only that. It is really important to understand that it is also talking about interpreting the text in ways that are inconsistent with the ethics and morality of monotheism. Okay. And this is precisely why when Allah says and, and, and overlooks a lot, it was not possible to challenge every misinterpretation that there are misinterpretations about the Sabbath, for instance. Well, the Prophet ﷺ was not going to take them on in that. Okay, you you read the, the laws of the Sabbath in ways that twist the arms of the text, we'll ignore that. But there's other things that we will not ignore, like defining justice as, you know, as... Uh, 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 one standard of justice applying for certain people, but a different standard applying in a different situation. Okay, and then when Allah describes this message, and I believe that this is really important of constantly internalizing the idea of God's covenant, that this is inur. This is a light. The, the, our relationship to luminosity, and like the khutbah yesterday was talking about, that when Allah warns us not to pass, not to follow the path of the demonic, of shaitan, fundamentally Allah is, is, is saying 
don't follow the path of darkness. The path of God is the path of light. The path of shaitan is the path of darkness. Okay, but very importantly, then this expression which detained the commentators, I mean, the commentators talked about this quite a bit. What came from God is a light and a, 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 a clear book that separates darkness from lights, wrong from right. What this book guides to is Subul salam Now, and I'll come back to Subul salam and takes people from darkness, out of darkness to light, and guides to the straight path of Surat al-Mustaqim. And the Surat al-Mustaqim, as we said before, is the path of moral consciousness. The path, the ethical path itself. Um, but when Allah says, guides to Subul al-Salam, the pathways, the various pathways to As-Salam, what is the Salam that is being referred to here? And various commentators relying on early reports from companions or successors from Tabi'in, you know, have made different arguments. But what is if when you when you call the various perspectives set out that Subul Islam that is referred to here is Turuq al Khair, the pathways to goodness. It is khair is a significant word because what is khair is what is intuitively known and undeniably the to be undeniably the case what is decent and what is good. What we so a a a human being fed rather than starving to death is khair. A human being, if they're in pain, the obligation to, to take that pain away is khair. If a, a human being is lost, helping this human being finding their home is khair. If a human being is di- displaced, 
helping a human being become anchored and placed as chayim. It is all the things that innately, if if we find a child on the ground crying, it is innate for us to pick up that child and take care of that child. That's chayir. So when Allah in the same breath as Allah says takes you out of darkness to light takes you to the straight path and takes you to subud salam this is the nature of what this prophet came a most muslim theologians when asking is this something unique to the message of the prophet muhammad or is this something inherent to the message of all the prophets and the overwhelming majority of Muslim theologians said that this is something inherent to all the prophets. In other words, all the prophets are bound to invite people to Subul As-Salam or the, the Subul Al-Khair, to the pathway of what is decent and good. And so, in, when, when Allah says this about the Prophet Muhammad, Allah is basically then saying, this, this Prophet Muhammad is reminding you of what you know is primordial good, what is the, the same message of goodness that other prophets came with and that you forgot and strayed away from. Although this is a, a much bigger topic, in my opinion, in the thinking of a philosopher like Kindi, or the thinking of a Sufi and philosopher like Ibn al-Arabi, or a, a, a Sufi and you know a philosopher in a sense like Jilani. They, when they, when they, when you scrutinize the way that they thought about what is good, they picked up on something that often simple scholars of hadith would miss. This is my opinion. And that is, there is something universal and primordial about the core goodness that every prophet came with and that the prophet Muhammad reminds the recipients of the earlier covenants of that there is while the sha'air are specific to the faith, while the sha'air 
vary with the message of each prophet. The Subul salam do not vary. They are universal and primordial. What is goodness remains goodness from the beginning of the monotheistic message to indefinitely. And this is, again, if you are talking about redirecting the moral compass and understanding what the call of Sirat al-Mustaqim is about, and when we constantly supplicate to Allah and say, إِهْدِنَا الصِّرَاطِ الْمُسْتَقِيمِ Of necessity, that is a prayer for an ethical path that cannot be grounded in exceptionalism or in twisted logic. As we will see, for instance, Abadat al-Taghut, that those who try to make justice consistent with being submissive to Taghut, as we will see in Surah Al-Ma'idah, in, in a little bit. What time is it? 8.48. See you? 8.48. Okay. Uh, then in 17, um, um, the only thing I, I, I just want to say about 17 is, well, let's... I just want to make sure I'm not forgetting anything. Okay. Um, so indeed, indeed the truth, they, they, uh, okay, Muhammad Asad's Indeed the truth deny they who say, it's a strange construction, the truth deny they, they deny the truth, they who say, behold God is Christ, son of Mary. Say, and who could have prevailed with God in any way had it been God's will to destroy Christ, son of Mary, and his mother, and everyone who is on earth, all of them. For God is for God's is the dominion over the heavens and the earth, and all is that is between them. God creates what God wills, and God has the power to will anything. Um Of course, we know that in Christianity, the idea of the Akhanim, or I, I don't know what's what's the English equivalent of the Akhanim. Um, um, that's also in Greek. Um, the, the, that, you know, the, that... Uh, uh, huh? Uh, yeah, hypostasis. Of that uh, basically, that the, the the idea that God, it's one God, but at the same time with three hypostases, that uh, the the Holy Ghost, the the Son, and the Father, uh, three in one and one in three. Um. And the, although the debates within 
Catholicism or what became Catholicism. So, I mean, the debates, if, if you just read about the, the debates in the Council of Nicaea and in the councils before Nicaea, um, I mean, it, it's, it's fascinating uh, because even that simple statement uh, conceals a lot of complexity in the arguments and debates about, well, you know, the, the exact nature of the Father, the exact nature of the Holy Ghost, the exact nature of the, of the Son, the exact nature of, of the Mother, uh, Maryam, um, and so on and so forth. Um, but what I've always found I mean and this is not just me but this was pointed out by a number of Quran commentators as well I mean it's sort of um, it's the most direct way and a rhetorically powerful way to to challenge the the whole idea of the hypostasis and God in three and it's like basically saying you know if you the most direct way to challenge it in your theory of God God the Father would never be capable of destroying God the Son or God the Holy Ghost without destroying God the Self. I mean, it's actually the most brilliant way of challenging it because, you know, instead of debating you about uh, the exact nature and, and who's what and what role and so on, uh, while what I'm telling you about monotheism is that, in fact, God, the one and only God, would have no problem, no, uh, uh, it's not a challenge for God to cancel the existence of Jesus or cancel the existence of his mother or, in fact, cancel the existence of all that ever appeared on this earth. It's like God saying, you don't realize how your entire existence, all of you together, including the prophets that I sent to you, including all the earthly phenomena that you, that you identify and that you discourse about how minor it is in vis-a-vis -vis God's ability and God's power. That, and I forgot where I read this, but there was one of the, the it might have been Ibn Taymiyyah in his, in his book on, on Trinity, where it says, you know, it, Human beings imagine that they, they, he's talking, he's referring to Christians, that they imagine that they are so central to God's creation that, that God would need to send part of God's self 
to them. While the universe could be full with God's creatures, and if God was obliged to do this for human beings, God would then be obliged to do this for all creatures in the universe. He's actually talking about uh, what we today call aliens. So he's actually imagining that there are the, the, the cosmos is full of uh, God's creatures. And saying, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's it, it, Earth and the human race is just such a small part of God's creation. And he was, he was commenting on this verse where Allah is saying, you know, you don't realize that it is absolutely nothing for God to create an immaculate conception and to have someone born without a father. What you think is you know, astoundingly exceptional to God. In fact, it is not, it, it is nothing to pause at. Um, okay. And 18 is significant, again, not because of what it tells us about Jews and Christians, but what it tells us, what lesson it has for Muslims. وَقَالَتِ الْيَهُودُ وَالنَّصَارَى نَحْنُ أَبْنَاءُ اللَّهِ وَأَحِبَّاؤُهُ قل فلما يعذبكم بذنوبكم بل أنتم بشر ممن خلق يغفر لمن يشاء ويعذب من يشاء ولله ملك السماوات والأرض وما بينهما وإليه المصير. so both Jews and Christians talk about their special status either as a chosen people and the the Old Testament will often uh, have repeated references to God but but God father here meant the like the equivalent of a Lord uh, and as does the the New Testament will often refer to um, God's creation or human beings as God's sons. Um, but interpretively, that was co-opted to either support the idea of a chosen people or to support the idea of a people who are, are special through a salvational relationship because of their acceptance of Jesus Christ as their savior. And so both Jews and Christians say we are God's children. Yeah, um, Muhammad Assad yeah, gives you a number uh, as when, for instance, in Exodus it says, Israel, my son, 
in Jeremiah it says, I am a father to Israel, etc., etc. That's very common in the Bible, if, if you've read the Bible. Anyway, uh, that most Jews and Christians say, we are God's children, and we are God's beloved, that we are special to God, because God especially loves us, which entitles us to a special relationship of having our sins forgiven simply through God's love, not through repentance and action. Because we've entered, we've accepted God's love, that entitles us to salvation from sins this later on you know Muslims suffered the the, the felt the, the the brunt of that in the most cruel way when crusades especially the first crusade but but the repeated campaigns of you know it committed incredible brutalities against Muslims and Jews and the sins were forgiven in advance because of the salvational relationship yes mediated through the church but because of the salvational relationship with Jesus that same theme by the way it, you find encountered throughout colonialism um, the you know the, the debates among the in 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 Christian Spanish theology and the theology of the conquistadors, whether the brutalities committed against native populations are forgiven by God upon serious repentance, or by virtue of the salvational relationship and intentionality behind the colonial project, and Time and time again, part of what supported the colonial project throughout the world uh, was the idea that well, these brutalities are are forgiven. So even if cruelty, including genocides and rapes and so on, are committed, um, it, it is all forgiven by virtue of that special relationship. We have the same thing that goes on with Israel and Palestinians today. I mean, how do you get an Israeli soldier that ties up a 78-year-old man who is incidentally an American citizen and watch him die and yet religiously go worship in a synagogue uh, you know, after watching this man uh, after killing this man or killing Palestinian children that that are repeatedly called again is that that logic of exceptionalism so Allah comes and says to these people and says you're wrong that you have a special status you are simply among what people has, what God has created, you are, as Muhammad Asad puts, puts it, 
um, you are but human beings of God's creating. So you, it is not that you are exceptionally good or exceptionally bad. And as a result, God forgives whom God wills and God punishes whom God punishes. And the same logic applies to you, which is, by the way, the same logic that applies to Muslims, that you are all subject to God's judgment, which is anchored in justice. But ultimately, it is not the special status that will save you or punish you, but you are, like everyone else, like Muslims, subject to God's judgment, whatever the mechanics of God's judgment are. Now, as I said, what's important, again, is what it tells Muslims. Remember that the theme of Surah Al-Ma'idah is the covenant. And it is a breach and a corruption of the covenant to believe that the covenant entitles you to a special privileged status vis-a-vis morality, vis-a-vis what is right and what is wrong, or vis-a-vis what is just or unjust. Ask yourself, have Muslims fallen the same trap? Because that is really what is relevant. It's not relevant what Jews and Christians did in the past or even what Jews or Christians are doing now. That's something for God to worry about, not for us. What is relevant is whether we've fallen in that trap. Do we assume that regardless of our relationship? to Subul al-Salam, to the Sirat al-Mustaqeem, to the Noor, to luminosity, to the light, regardless of our relationship to darkness, that we are entitled to a privileged relationship simply because, for instance, we perform rituals. That's the scary part. That's why, as, as I'll, when Ibn Abbas and al-Dahaq both say that of all the Quran, nothing troubled them as much as Surah Al-Ma'idah. That this is the Surah that kept them awake at night and transformed their entire being because I'm convinced that the earlier recipients of Surah Al-Ma'idah understood perfectly well the implications of what Allah was telling them about recipients of the earlier covenant and what that means for Muslims. as some other stories we'll talk about even make even more blatantly clear. Um, Okay. So, 
19, I don't have much to say about it, but let, let's take it. Um, might as well just, okay. So, uh, that followers, people of the book, followers of the Bible, now after a long time, during which no apostle appeared, there has come unto you our apostle to make the truth clear to you lest you say no bearer no we, we did not receive a messenger no bearer of glad tidings has come to us so in other words lest you say well you know we weren't given a chance to correct our path for now there has come unto you a bearer an apostle of glad tidings and a warner. Uh, what's what Bashir is what's titled as bearer of glad tidings. It's basically the good news, that which is the the same, the way the same way that God talks about the the idea of the good news that you find in the in the Bible. And Nazir is a warner. So, and. Again, both are necessary for the mizan and for justice. That it is good news and a warning. You can't take one without the other. You can't take the, the warning part and ignore the good news part. And you can't take the good news part and ignore the warning part, as a lot of Christians have done in, in this day and age. That they emphasize on oh, the, you know, the good news, Jesus Christ. But they completely ignore the warning part. Okay. Um, the only thing I want to say about verse 19 is that there is an entire theology that is anchored in a certain type of Hadith literature. Um, the Quranic verse says after a a long period of time there is a genre of hadith literature um, the hadith literature that talks about al-fitan the age of coming fitna coming trials and tribulations. A whole theology emerged, although the, the, the fitan ahadith are often of dubious authenticity. Um, this theology emphasized what we can call the ethics of Ahl al-Fatra, or what they called the ethics of Ahl al-Fatra. And remember the Quran says, Ala min rusul After a long period of time came the Prophet Muhammad. So what these theologians started talking about is that there is a, there is a certain moral order, a certain set of rules that applies 
to periods where they called the periods in which no prophet is present or no prophet exists. They call that Ahl al-Fatra, the period of the people of the Fatra. Period of... It's very hard to translate it. How do you translate it? Period of... Periods of absence of apostle, if you will. Okay? Now, okay. The problem, though, is that this is very popular these days. You, you find the Ahl al-Fatra theologians very, very popular these days. Because while the Quran refers to the what it calls the Fatra, Fatra just literally means period. But what the Quran says is that after a long period, the Prophet Muhammad came. What these theologians focus on is that they say there is a long period between the Prophet Muhammad and the coming of the Mahdi. And they call this period between the Prophet of Muhammad and the Mahdi the Fatra. And they call the people that exist in this period Ahl al-Fatra. So we are Ahl al-Fatra. Now, why is this a problem? Because this theology, which is very popular in our day and age, dilutes all the moral obligations of Islam as to the period from the time of the Prophet till the time of the coming of the Mahdi. So they'll tell you it's okay that Jerusalem is occupied. Why? Because we are living in the period of Ahl al-Fatra between the death of the Prophet and the coming of the Mahdi. When the Mahdi comes, Jerusalem will be liberated. It is okay that we live in injustice and despotism. Why? Because we are living in the period of Ahl al-Fatra. When the Mahdi comes, justice will reign and despotism will end. Everything that, in fact, it, it goes beyond where they even tell you that normal moral prescriptions like the prohibition against lying or the prohibition against cheating when dealing with other was dealing with non-muslims for instance uh, uh you know basically they dilute all moral prescriptions the problem is which seems to constantly elude these people is that they render the prophecy of Muhammad meaningless. Because they say basically that, oh, well, it, yeah, Muhammad was the last prophet, but the message that they conceived was the message of Muhammad, the message of morality and ethics and right and wrong, uh, it doesn't, you know, we can ignore all of that until the Mahdi comes, 
and they call this Ahl al-Fatra, and they claim to rely on the Quran because of this verse, which is astounding. Now, of course, it's not just the Quran, but they try to base a lot of what they say on a hadith al-fitan, that there will be a lot of fitan before the coming of the Mahdi, and you know there was a lot of injustice, and there's going to be a corruption and oppression, and the most the, your obligation during this period is to hide at home and close your door and lock your windows and just avoid dealing with human beings, and but they extended to. It, it, it basically a program by which Islam no longer is Islam because you are supposed to ignore what's happening to the Rohingyas, ignore what's happening to the, the, the to Muslims in China. You're supposed to ignore what's happening in Palestine. You're you're supposed to ignore what's happening in Gaza. You're supposed to ignore what's happening in Kashmir because this is just all part of the natural deterioration and natural corruption before the Mahdi comes. And all you're supposed to do is just wait till the Mahdi. Um, this, of course, you know, it, it's, it has become the safe haven for every cowardly and immoral soul. And so every sheikh that wants to just enjoy life and forget about the obligations of Islam and live selfishly has wholeheartedly embraced the theology of Ahl al-Fatra. And you find it taught from the Emirat to Saudiya to Egypt to, you know, to uh, uh, the U.S., to Canada, to Britain, uh, taught by Muslims everywhere. The khutbah I gave was about following in the footsteps of shaitan. I have no doubt that this entire theology is following in the footsteps of shaitan. I mean, shaitan couldn't have given us a more convenient escape from all our moral obligations and all the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad than this Ahl al-Fatra theology. Um, but you'd be, I mean, I, I don't know if you'd be surprised or not, but when you look at the, the, the there's a very prominent um, teacher of, of this theology called Ala al-Zahri. He has millions of followers. I mean, this guy has something like two and a half million followers uh, on YouTube. Um, which is just astounding. But of course, you know, and, and I, the funny thing is, although everything we are supposed to ignore, you know, Palestine, Kashmir, China, whatever, just, you know, Saudi, what's happening in the Haram, even, you know, the, the, the corruption of, of Mecca and all of that. The one thing he has a lot of vehemence and poison about are the Shia. He apparently can't chuck that up to the coming of the Mahdi. It, no, it's the, the, the one thing you absolutely have to, to detest and hate and, uh, you know, if there is an opportunity to spill their blood, uh, you must jump on it, is 
the Shia. I mean, do you see how Surah Al-Ma'idah starts, you start really understanding how Surah Al-Ma'idah is warning us about precisely the pitfalls that we find ourselves in in the modern age? Okay, we, we reach verse what? Uh, 19. 19, okay. Okay, let's, let's stop here. Uh, we'll, we'll stop here tonight, uh, verse 19, and inshallah, uh, when we have the, at least we have uh, part of the troops, we won't have Joe back, we won't have Sharif back, uh, we won't have Witski back, but we'll, we'll have Grace back. Uh, so, the, uh, inshallah, we'll continue then. And Inshallah, all the rest. Do you, do you want to come close? Come close. <laughs> and Witski is by the here, by the way here, so she can receive your very important message. Alhamdulillah. Let's count the absence of Joe Witski and Sharif as one of the blessings of Allah. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Um, uh, I mean, I think the halaqa really speaks for itself, and it's really. We made progress today, you know, instead of just the four verses, we actually did about 15. So that's, that's major. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, yeah. And uh, the good news for everyone is that next week, Grace will be back to do what I'm doing right now. But uh, what's that? I'm, I'm getting that where the YouTube comments are blowing up and people want me to keep doing intros. I don't know. Yeah, you could tell. Who knows? <laughs> okay, well, see you all next week, inshallah. Inshallah. <laughs> 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 Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. End it. That's it. Yeah. Close. Okay. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.